Welcome to 42 Answers from Founders for Founders, a podcast series brought to you by Project A Ventures, the operational VC. My name is Rainer Birak, operating partner at Project A, and our guest today is basically the whole leadership of Project A. Welcome all of you. We have basically our experts from all the different domains that we are talking about here in this podcast. Um, and very much looking forward to that. Very special episode. Um, I'm curious about what we ourselves are saying about all 42 questions. So usually we talk to great founders and to those who have been great founders in the past. And today we ask domain experts and we ask them about what we believe makes a company successful. And that is tech, growth, people, data, and ESG. I think I don't need to introduce everybody here um, individually or so, but we will do that basically as we go. Project A, as a background, is an operational VC. That means um, we invest in early stage startups. Check us out on projecta.com. Um, good investments among them, Trade Republic, Voy, the scooters that you might know, um, Katawiki, um, uh, and many, many more, um, a number of unicorns. And the special thing about this model um, that we run is that we have an operational team of 140 experts that really help the startups to grow in their areas. And, and these are exactly tech growth, people, data, et cetera. And, um, and, and that's why I have the honor of welcoming our C-level and VP-level uh, in all these domains here today. So let's get started. People. With me are Andrea, Fabian, and Charlotte. Andrea is our VP uh, Talent Acquisition, Fabian, our Director HR, and Charlotte is leading our venture development team. Welcome, everybody. And we start with the first question, and this one goes to Charlotte. If you would start a company today, what would be your first five hires? And I'll start with the favorite answer, which is it depends, <laughs> because it very much depends on whether you're building a B2B company or a B2C company, it also depends on your business model, your market, and it also depends on the capabilities of your founding team. So let's assume I've just got pre-seed funding together with my co-founder. Um, let's assume we're a complementary team, so she probably has some sort of tech and product experience. The first five people I would hire would be two full-stack engineers, one backend engineer, and a product designer to build my product. And then the fifth hire would depend a little bit on the points I mentioned earlier. So am I building B2B or B2C? Um, uh, what is my business model? What is my, what is my product or my market? And then the fifth person would either be maybe a data engineer or a business hire, or specifically if I'm building a B2C company, probably somebody with a lot of brand expertise or community building expertise. Andrea, um, welcome again uh, to this episode. Um, my question to you is, and that's question number two, are these the typically first five hires that we see in companies in our portfolio? Is this what people want to hire first? Well, I mean, to be honest, it depends a bit on the scope of the technical product or service. If the product or what we saw, see, if the product is very technical, it then usually needs in the beginning tech and product people to develop and make it feasible, right? The product or the sure. service. If the product is less technical, the commercial part is more important and more relevant from the beginning on. 
So next to product and tech people, hiring sales or marketing expertise could be very important from early on here. And I guess, I mean, like if you have a very technical team, they might not want to lose focus on the commercial aspect as well. So, and that might be actually what they are missing. Um, is that the case sometimes? And are you trying to actually uh, bring that message to them? Well, I mean, it really depends a bit on the stage. If they have to develop the product, it's usually always good to have a certain sales and expertise um, within this within the situation. But you also could get that from external advice, especially in the beginning, yeah. if you really need to concentrate on the product. But sure, okay, that's a fair point. marketing yeah. or sales uh, from early on is always, uh, yeah, is always a tip in this regard. Yeah. Okay. And what is the hardest to hire today? When you, when you go out with your team and try to hire people for our portfolio, what's the hardest to find? Um, well, in terms of roles, finding excellent marketing talents, especially in the field of growth and performance marketing, was a challenge this year. Currently, mm -hmm. marketing, um, specifically talents who understand marketing in a holistic way, we have a great demand for that. There are quite a few mm -hmm. people, um, marketing specialists on the market, but really to find the people with certain level of business acumen, we had to be very selective. And yeah, mm -hmm. that's, that also included a lot of HR interviews from our side. Yeah. Maybe to add on this, because tech is always the thing, what, what we get asked, tech is always a struggle, especially when it comes to niche skills, like languages, certain tools, or also a certain industry background. Um, and then it can be very hard to fill. And from our, from our perspective, we realize going through these very time-consuming and also um, very intense process, it often can actually get, can be a good advice, for instance, to train your people internally to have like kind of a sustainable way to gain tell to get talents like in future even better okay um how about languages um not not most of our portfolio but we have a number of uh, german speaking uh, port uh portfolio companies uh, who actually require that especially also in the sales process if if the, the german speaking um market is their is their target um, is, is that a topic or, or is the industry so internationalized by now? Uh, I, I'm pretty sure uh, my team would now say it's a common challenge. <laughs> Means, yeah. yeah, requirements such language or also like the flexibility and work arrangement, what we see nowadays a lot, is mm -hmm. making hiring very difficult. Like, for instance, classical example, hiring a remote English first uh, talent, like for a remote English first company, We always mm -hmm. find easier talents instead of uh, hiring for a German-led on-site company, what we, of course, have in a lot in our portfolio companies due to, as you said, for example, requirements in German for sales and so on. Yeah. Okay. Uh, quickly coming back on the marketing thing, um, because if you think about it, it's probably not so surprising because a lot of, because marketing, I mean, digital marketing as we know it is nothing that is, it is probably taught at some universities, but it's nothing that you really learn there. You learn it on the job probably. And then the first wave of startups was very B2C, where you had all the specialization in the channels. And I guess that now the, the requirements change now that B2B is the, is the, is the dominant uh, type of, of startup. Is, is that a point? Yeah, I mean, this is also what, what, what I mean, like with the marketing specialists and all these more holistic yeah. people. On the other side, what you also said, marketing became more technical. Right. We are also like True. a lot of marketing is automized. The process is automized a lot. So making people 
um, ahead of these, understanding the game, understanding these tools, and also be able to allocate um, resources and understand the KPIs in the right way, this is more the skill what is needed instead of being a specialist in, I don't know, Zio um, or whatever in this regard. Yeah. So and this is, uh, okay. it also gets or comes with this business acumen, what I meant too, mm -hmm. to understand the market, the strategy, and also to allocate um, the, your resources to certain okay. channels. Question number four to Fabian. How do you suggest measuring employee satisfaction? Okay. So from a business perspective, the first question should actually not be how can we measure employee satisfaction, but what should we measure to get the most relevance, the most meaning for the most relevant HR KPIs for employee turnover, for absence rate, for the employee motivation. And... Um, That has been a little bit of, of a journey for HR people. We started at the beginning to measure the organizational commitments. That, that was way too complex. So the, the best questionnaire to, to measure employee commitment has 13 questions. The um, organizational commitment questionnaire from, from Harvard. And that, that is just not very practical. Um, when that failed, HR people started to measure the work satisfaction. They just asked people, are you happy working here? Um, and then the problem was that um, this kind of question had very, very high short-term fluctuations. So the data was just not very reliable. And then they started measuring the employee engagement. The question, would you recommend this place of work to your friends and family? And this The employee net promoter score, basically, the right? employee net promoter score. Um, and that is a question that has the highest correlations to the most significant HR KPIs to employee turnover, to employee motivation, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Okay. Question number six, back to Fabian. How do you think an organization should be structured? What's your favorite type of org chart? That is a tough question. For Don't me. say matrix. <laughs> <laughs> matrix to, tends to create a lot of complications uh, in our experience. Um, I think um, the org chart is only one part, one very significant part of organizational design, but it's only one part. I think the key question that should be at the start of your thinking is what do we need our team to be very, very good in to make us successful? And um, then you d develop an understanding about the talents, about the skills that your team needs, and that is the basis to reflect on the structure that you need, on how many FTE you need um, in each function. Um, that is the basis for, for your personal planning. And then you continue all the way down with um, what are the key accountabilities in our leadership team? What are your, our metrics for um, to evaluate performance? What are our success metrics for, for the company and for each single team? And how do we reward success? Um, also, how do we coordinate our different departments? Usually, that kind of thinking is based on the value-added process. Yeah, you start at the very beginning and just think about who should be informed, who should be consulted about each step in this process. Okay, and if you follow all that, then you can basically go for the classic Christmas tree structure? I, I think especially for, for, for a startup, the classic Christmas tree structure makes a lot of sense. Question number seven, uh, and we stay with Fabian. What's your approach to culture? I think everybody who is listening to this question has a different understanding of culture. Let's say 
at the very beginning, culture is not about company values. Co company values are aspirations, are good and meaningful and impactful and important, but they are not what's actually going on in your company. Um, when we think about culture, we could ask our people and they would probably tell us a lot about uh, um, nice working culture, about um, an atmosphere that is enjoyable. Um, from a business perspective, it is probably more about how can we create a culture that adds to our business purpose, to our intent. And then we very, very quickly get to all the small details in our everyday work life. When do we log in in the morning? When do we um, log out? What is our response time on, on Slack? How much dissent do you expect from your employees? It's about a lot of small things that can't be written down somewhere and that essentially brings us to leadership. So I think culture is 80, 90% about, about leadership and the best instrument to get your leadership team in line would be discussing with them what means good leadership in our sense for our company. Um, very popular for that is uh, building a leadership framework that, that answers this question. Charlotte, how would you measure employee performance? Don't say it depends. <laughs> <laughs> I think taking one step back, um, why, why I believe it's um, important to measure employee performance from day one, even if you're very early stage, not only so you have clarity on what different people in your team are contributing to, but as a second point, or maybe it should be the first point for your people to understand when they're doing a good job and when not, and if they're fulfilling the expectations and whether they're running in the right direction. So no matter if you're just a small, you know, pre-seed or, or early seed company, having goals to be able to measure employee performance is, I think, equally important for both sides. Now, I don't believe you need a full-fledged OKR setup when you're a seed company, but probably when you're, when you're sort of in Series A stage. Before Series A, I think setting a focus area per quarter or setting, let's say, smart goals, I think is, is sufficient, but I would measure employee performance um, based on the goal achievement that, are, that we've all set together for the quarter or even the achievement of specific KPIs. I think it just gives a lot of clarity to not only you, but also um, to your people to work independently. Question number six, back to Fabian. How do you think an organization should be structured? What's your favorite type of org chart? That is a tough question. For Don't me. say metrics. <laughs> <laughs> metrics to, tends to create a lot of complications uh, in our experience. Um, I think um, the org chart is only one part, one very significant part of organizational design, but it's only one part. I think the key question that should be at the start of your thinking is what do we need our team to be very, very good in to make us successful? And um, then you d develop an understanding about the talents, about the skills that your team needs. And that is the basis to reflect on the structure that you need, on how many FTE you need um, in each function. Um, that is the basis for, for your personal planning. And then you continue all the way down with um, what are the key accountabilities in our leadership team? What are your, our metrics for um, to evaluate performance? What are our success metrics for for the company and for each single team, and how do we reward success? 
Um, also, how do we coordinate our different departments? Usually, that kind of thinking is based on the value-added process. Yeah, you start at the very beginning and just think about who should be informed, who should be consulted about each step in this process. Okay, and if you follow all that, then you can basically go for the classic Christmas tree structure. I think especially for, for, for a startup, the classic Christmas tree structure makes a lot of sense. Question number seven, uh, and we stay with Fabian. What's your approach to culture? I think everybody who is listening to this question has a different understanding of culture. Let's say at the very beginning, culture is not about company values. Company values are aspirations are good and meaningful and impactful and important, but they are not what's actually going on in your company. Um, when we think about culture, we could ask our people and they would probably tell us a lot about uh, um, nice working culture, about um, an atmosphere that is enjoyable. Um, from a business perspective, it is probably more about how can we create a culture that adds to our business purpose, to our intent. And then we very, very quickly get to all the small details in our everyday work life. When do we log in in the morning? When do we um, log out? What is our response time on, on Slack? How much dissent do you expect from your employees? It's about a lot of small things that can't be written down somewhere and that essentially brings us to leadership. So I think culture is 80, 90% about, about leadership and the best instrument to get your leadership team in line would be discussing with them what means good leadership in our sense for our company. Um, very popular for that is uh, building a leadership framework that, that answers this question. Andrea, your turn again. Um, remote first or office first? What's the current trend? What are talent and companies asking for? <laughs> well, I mean, if you ask the candidates, they would say remote first. <laughs> if you ask the companies, they uh, tend to want their people back to the office lately. So uh, <laughs> um, if you asked, I mean, you probably asked me, right? You asked my perspective on this. Yes. We, still yeah. have, uh, we still have a market-driven, um, talent-driven market, I mean, sorry. Um, means yeah. we're still facing talent shortage. Yeah, talent shortage is greater than ever. And I mean, it's not new, but we have the demographic change. We have the digitalization. And these all results in that we have fewer people and due to technology, we have new jobs arising regularly. And this means the employer has to figure out how to face this, you know, how to attract talents. And in addition to that, the last years now, due to like a lot of reasons we know from the pandemic, the, the war and so on, candidates are not willing to return back to the same workplace as before, like back to the office. Mm, maybe to share here like a number because I, um, I get this question quite often asked. We deducted 2,500 interviews last uh, six months and mm -hmm. the preference to work flexible, to have a flexible working approach is nearly stated by every candidate. And wow. to really change a job to a remote first company is highly appreciated from talents. Yeah. But isn't that just, just as, a, as a little extra question on that, isn't I mean, like the moment the company understands that the people they hire, they will not come to their office anyway. At that moment, also doesn't matter anymore if you have the probably more pricey marketing talent from Berlin or Hamburg or so, if you if you think of Germany. Um, 
And you probably can also reach out to talent in, I don't know, uh, Portugal, Romania or so, where they have also excellent people. Um, but the, the, the average salary is probably a little bit lower. Yeah. Well, a lot of companies, all the companies should be prepared for that, right? They have to find their own way, of course, but they should be prepared. But um, to zoom a bit out here, I mean, it's not just a decision of the companies. It's also a decision what Europe or Germany has to, yeah, has to find answers to that, right? We're still mm -hmm. not the most attractive place uh, in Germany for remote talents um, for a lot of reasons. And therefore, I even just talking about a long visa process, right? I mean, this is not remote, but this is like for on-site, but also our general labor law um, makes it yeah. very hard to really be flexible as a company. So on one mm -hmm. side, the company has to find a way within the system But on the other side, also, there are a lot of questions need to be answered from Europe and Germany and in general, how we want to work in future. Yeah, that's actually, we should probably do a, a podcast simply only on that topic or a meetup or so. Let's do that soon. Thanks a lot. Sure. Um, and we move on to the next chapter. Tech. With us are Stefan Schulz, our CTO, Tam El Havari, our CPO, and Natalia, our director for design. And we get started with question number nine, Stefan. Um, would you call most companies in our portfolio tech companies? That's a very good question, Rainer. It depends a bit on how you look, what is a tech company. Overall, if you say that's a company that has a business model that is supported by tech in terms of software development, um, we are building uh, applications, um, software as a service, etc., then clearly, yes. Um, so that, that's my take. So I would say, yes, most of the portfolio companies are actually tech companies. Um, do they behave like tech companies by the book, right? If you read Marty Kagan um, and all the others, not all of them. That's like my answer okay. to that. Tama, what's your view? I think that most of the companies that have in our portfolios are actually tech companies. Um, and I think this kind of question, is it a tech company or not, is very important because most of the businesses that we have have this kind of like classical business model approach, right? And we are using technology to make this one better to, to leverage the entire kind of business. And of course, like especially in the VC case, we need to make sure that the um, tech part plays in an integrated role because um, otherwise it's not going to be a VC case, so it's not worth investing. Most companies will have some people in product and some in development. Who should be the one that, uh, who should be in the lead of the two? Should, be, should there be any hierarchy among those two? So I believe that there should be no hierarchy between um, the product part and the development part, um, because if you would put a hierarchy into one of the other, uh, you're going to end up uh, with things that you probably don't want. So um, let me give you an example. Um, if you put development into, um, into the lead, you're going to get probably great technical solutions. Right, but maybe you're going to get solutions that don't relate to any type of problem. Um, on the other side, if you just like put um, product into the lead um, for everything, you might gonna get um, very good problems and good ideas and features and whatever. Um, but at some point of time, you're gonna might miss out um, the scalability of your business. So I think that um, product and development should be pari and just like learn and develop from each other because both of the fields have areas and specificities. Um, that you actually need in order to, to, to combine it and just like uh, grow your business from there. Question number 11, Stefan. 
who should decide what to develop next? Who is it? Because that's sometimes a discussion between product and tech. Who should be in the lead here? Yeah, uh, also a very good question. From my perspective, there are two answers to that. So when it comes about creating business value in terms figuring out what user actually or customers actually wants and wants to pay for uh, and what to build next in, in the direction to the user, I would say it's clearly product management. Right, Because I expect product management to think about, uh, investigate, do discovery and figure out what is the customer willing to pay for. And then we as software engineering or tech teams, we follow um, and uh, we provide our opinions to that as well. Right, um, But we will actually implement um, what is needed. When it comes to the technical product in terms of, okay, um, what should we build next uh, in our iteration of our software architecture or system architecture as an example, I would not see product management um, being in the lead, but this will always be driven by the tech people, so named software engineers, um, infrastructure people, um, whoever. Um, so it depends a bit on the direction. Uh -huh. I guess that's a fair differentiation, and I guess Tama can very well live with that uh, answer. Um, thank you. Question number 12, Stefan, how should a good decision process in that work? So how do product and tech and business owners come together and, and best decide what's to be developed next? Hey, that's a very tough question. Um, and I think there is also no clear answer to that. I can just share my perspective on that. So what I would always keep in mind is something like the business perspective. That sounds maybe a bit strange from the tech side to think about the business perspective, but I think it's a very important one, right? Because on the one hand, I see sometimes business and also product management asking to implement features where a software engineer or like a person with a different um, perspective has a very different approach to that in terms of, I don't think that this feature is meaningful. So what I always would expect is to have some kind of decision process that is supported with facts and data. So I expect product management to do discovery work. I would expect business to provide with a business case. Um, I would expect that uh, tech is actually doing estimations and so cost calculation. Okay, how, will, how much money would it need to implement a specific piece? Um, and also then come together and say, okay, we are going to, we, we assume that we're going to reach um, that business value or ROI um, at the end. Um, and uh, that would be a major impact driver for my prioritization. What I would also okay. keep in mind is we maybe don't do stuff, right? So, um, I mean, there's always limited capacity. And so it's also part of the prioritization process to say, look, we're going to take that in, but therefore we're going to take another piece out, which we expect to deliver less value. Mm -hmm. Question 11, Tama, what's your take on product-led growth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, product-led growth. Um, so when I heard the first time about this term, I was just like, what is that? What does it mean? And then I dive deeper into some kind of blog post and read about it and said like, what is this kind of product-led growth? And just like the only thing that I found was We're just like not doing anything business. This is just like our usual business that we should do. I mean, like we should develop a product that serves the user needs and somehow drives our business, right? And this by using technology and product-led growth is doing that one. What I actually like about product-led growth is um, that it's thinking about um, how customers are coming onto your platform and make it as easy as possible to actually um, drive your acquisition and seeing product and the product works as an acquisition is in my point of view, very important and often underrated because most of the product people 
just like think in their product, in their boundaries, once the user is there, but the user um, has a journey up front. He has a context. He is coming to this kind of platform. And I think a product manager should um, also focus on that because it's, um, um, it's not a gate that the customer is going through and then he's finally on your product. So uh, this is why I believe that um, I don't think there is a lot of things to product-led growth because it's just like typical things, but spotlighting on this uh, acquisition and growth part uh, behind it is, I think, um, uh, giving a good spin into the current product management world. Natalia, which role should design play in an early-stage company and maybe also specify what design includes in your view? So I think that design has reached a great level of maturity. In the past years, businesses and other organizations have realized that design like sales, marketing, or engineering must be a core competency because the shift to networked software and having also different devices with um, several touch points has created an environment that is chaotic and unpredictable. So we no longer have software in a box, um, on a shelf, but it requires continuous delivery. So um, this is why um, early stage startups um, this have decided to invest in design in order to manage the software-driven complexity of their businesses. It has proven to have a direct impact on business success in the way it supports uh, product development, it influences user behavior, customer engagement, and also retention. Okay, thanks. Question 15. Stefan, do you ever recommend anybody, any startup, to outsource their software development? If it's a tech company, or would you say that's always a, a piece that has to be inside, um, that has to be covered by the company itself in order to, you know, probably legitimate um, their value? Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. So overall, I would say it's definitely something that you can consider to do. I would always argue that it definitely makes sense to have the knowledge, the IP, and the ownership of the software that you need to run your business in-house, right? So if you offer, imagine like a software-as-a-service business um, that is fully outsourced to an external provider, that can definitely be like a, like a negative uh, signal in a, in a due diligence, as an example. But if you think of um, using like an extension to your internal team, so you have like, let's imagine two, three people internally, and then you have like another two, three externally, that's completely fair, as long as you make sure that you own the, the company. I would have one recommendation, what I would never do, that is to say, here, please provider, here's my written specification, please develop that for me and then hand it over back to me. I never saw that. So I saw multiple approaches um, of people who tried that. It never worked. So that's definitely not recommended. Okay. Thank you, Stefan, Tama and Natalia. And we are moving on to the next chapter. Growth. The next chapter is growth. And I'm happy to welcome here Tuingan, um, our CMO, Raul, our sales director, and Simon, who is our Chief Brand and Communications Officer. Welcome, the three of you. And we start with Tuingan. My question, my first question to you is, if you think about the complete funnel, you think about brand, marketing, sales, customer success, all of that, should a good B2B company have all these functions? 
Definitely, yes. So, but it also depends on the stage where you are at, because obviously you cannot hire for every function one person uh, when when you start the company. Um, also, depending on the cash flow that you have. Uh, also, it would make sense to maybe outsource a few things in the beginning to just test a few approaches and see what works best. So you can also adequately plan your headcount. But uh, definitely, you should cover all the four different areas. Uh, I think it's more a matter of how you're gonna, how, where you're gonna uh, put the focus on. So there's, for example, um, there are, for example, companies that are. Um, clearly sales-led uh, in terms of their growth. Others are uh, very marketing-led. Uh, others can be product-led. So it very much depends on um, on yeah your product, your business model, and also how you want to sell the product. And I guess you should really not underestimate the effect of brand here. Because no. if you're fresh, new in B2B, so you want to sell to businesses, nobody knows you, nobody trusts you, Nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM, but probably people got fired for hiring some whatever. I've never heard of them, little uh, niche uh, supplier, and then it goes wrong. So you probably need to make a solid impression there. Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, I think, Brian, we should also extend the definition a little bit by yeah. also covering product marketing. So really working on the value proposition for each uh, CVP, uh, oh, sorry, not uh, CVP, uh, for each uh, ICP. So CVP per ICP. Um, Can you... Uh, CVP is a uh, customer value proposition yeah. and ICP, that's the, uh, the ideal customer profile. Yeah. Okay, I guess, Simon, you like to hear that. Uh, let's move on to you. Simon, who of those functions that Tringan just mentioned should be in the lead for the process and how would you structure them? Of course, as always, this depends on the situation. It depends on the case. If you are, for instance, an early stage B2B venture and aim to acquire your first, let's say, 10 customers to test and iterate your product, then most probably sales should be in the lead. But on the other side, if you are, for instance, a B2C scale-up and your main goal is to raise your brand awareness and broaden the funnel, it makes most sense to put brand into the lead. Still, it is generally best to have someone leading your growth team with a deep understanding of all layers of the marketing funnel. So from brand communication down to CRM and upwards back. Raul, how can you make sure all these functions don't work in silos and blame each other in case the revenue doesn't pour in because they have a sequential work of working with each other usually. So the question is, if, if something doesn't work, they, they might blame each other. How can you avoid that? So I think this is a sales, marketing, product, brand alignment question because um, better alignment yields better understanding of where things went wrong and you go away from the blame game. And when it comes to how alignment should work nowadays, I'm strongly convinced that it's, it's not done by going on a, on a, on a slide or to, a, to an event where basically all the advice you hear is you just need to talk more with each other. Um, and that's been the advice for the last five years. I think alignment between departments, let's just take sales and marketing, for example, there's six elements to it. There's strategic alignment, there's personal alignment, there's processes, there's uh, technology, there's data that needs to be aligned, and there's information and education that needs to be done. And what you need to do is you need to make it get it to a point where there's people responsible for these and there's formats where these happen. So just as an example, that's why you have revenue ops people who make sure that the data and the technology between sales and marketing is aligned. When you do that, you make it so you can move away from the blame game. Simon, um, you are our strategy and brand specialist, um, among other things. 
And the question is about brand. How important should startups, especially early stage startups, see the topic brand? I'm completely convinced that founders cannot overestimate the importance of brand and brand. It is, by the way, undisputed among academics that a strong brand is crucial for a startup's success. Still, many founders underestimate the relevance of branding for their commercial success. They usually argue that their limited budget is better invested in lower funnel marketing activities in order to generate short-term revenue. They sometimes even fear, and this is what we experience, that brand development hinders the startup's flexibility and speed. At Project A, we often experience that disbeliefs and assumptions are wrong and often lead to failures that become very expensive to fix further down the line in a company's growth step. And follow-up question, so how should they approach brand? So based on our experience here at Project A with a wide range of different ventures, we can say that it is vital to carefully build the brand from day one, from the very beginning of your entrepreneurial journey. We call this here at Project A minimum viable brand. It is a startup's first brand positioning and identity, and this concept covers a brand's core elements and assets and provides a good balance between structure on one side and agility on the other. And then, as soon as the brand is brought to life and communicated to the outside world, one will see if it works. And based on these learnings, and while slowly moving up the funnel, you continuously iterate and improve your brand. A brand is a living system. It is never perfect or finished. Tuingan, which marketing channels would you recommend using in 2022, 2023, and why? So that depends highly on the business model that you have. For example, e-commerce, they usually always go with uh, paid search, very, very paid search heavy, sure. um, and then a little bit of paid social. Um, other companies grow purely through paid social, um, in, especially in the B2C area. Generally, I think, though, that both for B2B and B2C, I've never seen... Uh, paid social going completely wrong because paid social also includes not only Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and so on. Uh, you can also think of LinkedIn and Reddit, uh, which are essentially also social platforms where we as, as users and humans uh, interact on. Okay. Performance marketing. Um, I think like a little bit more than a year ago at the Project A Knowledge Conference, you had a little talk together with Uwe Horstmann and you were Uh, coming up with uh, yeah with the hypothesis that performance marketing is dead. Is it dead? Is it dying soon? It is uh, in motion of dying, <laughs> I'd say. <laughs> What do you mean by that? Because I, I don't think that you mean that harsh, but, yeah. <laughs> but there's a spin to it. So it, it definitely gets more complicated or more difficult for, for advertisers. So I, I, I've never met a company in the last let's say 12 months that said, oh, wow, it got so easy to advertise on the different ad platforms just because tracking becomes more difficult. Uh, you get less visibility and transparency on, uh, on, on how to optimize your campaigns. Uh, so it, it is definitely getting more difficult in that sense. But um, I think what the, the whole ecosystem is basically now shifting more towards Uh, essentially more of like an aggregated uh, measurement level. So looking more at MMMs instead of deterministic user tracking. MMMs? Uh, marketing mix modeling. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And uh, so in that sense, it's not 
it's not completely dying, but uh, performance marketing is definitely struggling right now. Okay. Thanks a lot. And uh, for the folks out there, learning a lot of new abbreviations. Thank you for that. Question 21, Raul. Um, in your opinion, do all B2B companies need salespeople or is sometimes product-led growth just enough? I would not say in every case uh, you always need salespeople, right? And especially nowadays, you get new possibilities of selling. Um, I even know cases where you can only go with marketing or only with product. It's unlikely, though, that you'll build a great scaling company by using just one channel. So uh, really, the, the question is, and, and I would also add to that, by the way, a customer success. The, the question is, out of these levers that you have, what can you utilize to get the most growth potential out of? And it's very likely that once you really want to scale, uh, you will need to add sales to your product-led motion. You will need to add more marketing and you will need to add customer success. The right order is always going to be different and it depends on many things, the phase you're in, the product, the markets, the maturity of everyone uh, in the market and the competition and everything. So um, there is not one answer, but very likely you really want to build a unicorn or a successful company, then yes, you will need them. So where do you find them? Where can you find good digital savvy salespeople? So there's a couple answers to that. I think the, the easiest one is obviously there's uh, digital business models that are very established. And there's a lot of people that went through those. So um, I think you, you're making a mistake if you're saying, well, my business is not a SaaS business, so I can't hire, I cannot hire SaaS people. They won't work in my model. Uh, I think that's not how sales works. A good salesperson will be able to adjust to your model typically as well. Um, and you can go looking for these people. Uh, obviously, best case, you are SaaS, then you will have an easy time finding people. You will, however, have to pay them. So manage your expectations accordingly when it comes to paying them. You're not going to get a good salesperson in Berlin for under 100,000 euros. It's not going to happen. Um, and even in today's climate, that's not the case. But the easiest thing uh, I would say to really scale things on is to build them yourself. And this is what we do ourselves at Project A. Um, you can also do that by uh, taking people from university, going through an SDR route, and then turning them into salespeople. But really invest in training, coaching, and enablement of people is probably the easier route to do this in a scalable way. Data. The next chapter is data, or as I should say, data and analytics. At least this is how this team or this, this cluster is called at Project A. And we have with us now Ole Bosdorf, and we have with us Kirill. Um, they are in charge of, yeah, well, the, the, the data and the analytics team. How should data make a startup successful? Hi, Rainer. Yeah, and thanks for the question. I'm the guy who's running more the analytics side of the team. How should data make a startup successful? So, well, our startups, they actually set out pretty opinionated. A founder has identified a certain niche and opportunity that nobody else has thought of, and the timing is right for it. So initially, it's all about intuition, gut-based feeling. Data doesn't play a large role there. But soon enough, decisions will be more complex, and there will be a higher amount of decisions that need to be made. And naturally, data can add a lot of focus here. So by tracking the right KPIs that are well understood within the business, And then running certain initiatives that are important around data, be that predictions, automations, certain analyses, this can really help to drive the business forward in an iterative approach and understand 
what works well, what doesn't work so well. Ultimately, it should be embedded in any major business process, while initially it might all be intuition-based. And that transition is a challenge, but a very exciting one as well. Um, which functional areas would you say should be supported by a data team? Classic is marketing. I guess everybody has that uh, on the plate. Uh, very often it's finance. Would you say that should go beyond that? Well, ideally at some point it does, but naturally there are sort of like low-hanging fruits where on the one side a lot of data is being produced, be that in marketing, ad platforms, within the sales funnel or within how people engage with the product. But not just a lot of data is available, but there are also clear use cases, be that marketing budget allocation or understanding where leads get stuck in the funnel or maybe A-B testing. So we also set out usually supporting marketing, sales, product, much less finance actually, because there's a certain level of accuracy um, that data teams to a certain extent, well, it needs a lot of time to get to a level of accuracy that finance actually accepts. I would like our team to venture out into adjacent domains as well. I find logistics, for example, incredibly interesting. There's mm -hmm. a lot of data within HR and talent acquisition that can be leveraged. But unfortunately, these are a bit lower on the prioritization list of the data team. They usually go after where the money is by either making things more efficient through maybe cost reduction or growth optimization. So yeah, indeed, marketing, sales, product are the ones that come to mind first. Yeah, and maybe if you have a company that is somehow heavy on actual goods, everything that's related to supply chain might actually also profit from anything where you can make predictions, right? Like forecasting. Like, uh, yeah, ideally, we'd like to get more involved there, but we are also very often faced with a decision maker that has done this for 10, 20 years. And now we're uh -huh. talking again about a certain level of intuition and experience. And now <laughs> we, we need stakeholders that are very receptive to insights. And unfortunately, within like supply chain logistics, in our experience, that has been a bit less the case. But I hope that generally that, that tide is turning as well. Should a data team answer questions, specific questions that they are asked, or should they themselves explore data available and find opportunities and also, you know, like push opportunities for teams that probably should act and decide more in a data-driven or data-supported way? Yeah, this is a good one. Of course, naturally, the truth lies here somewhere within between, but it's important to say that a lot of the data teams, also the ones that we work with, are entirely swamped with incoming requests and questions. And that's unfortunately where they usually fall short and also perform below expectations. There will always be lots of questions once you start publishing reports and analyses, and that is a good thing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, that all of these actually need to be really catered to. Some are probably more important. How should we allocate our budget? And some are a bit less in terms of scale. So the other part of the question that you mentioned, which we would usually call something like proactive insight discovery, is something that data teams fail a bit at allocating resources to, but it's something really important. So our team is also very busy in providing data, but I'd like them to look a lot more into the data that we're actually providing in order to 
well identify trends, derive hypothesis on where the product or where the strategy should be going, and then iterate a bit more on this. So ideally, it is something within between. There's a certain service level in terms of getting questions out to people. This can be a bit reduced if metrics are really well defined and data is easily accessible. But then on the other side, there should really be focus on certain key initiatives. What are the businesses core problems? Is it churn? Is it new customer acquisition? And then ideally the data team comes up with good initiatives in, in order to support these. Uh, but that's not always the case. Thanks, Ole. Now moving on to our director, data engineering, Kirill Panev. How can one ensure people really do what the data recommend? What we see a lot is uh, people build data infrastructure, they have all kinds of reports, etc., and then they all go by gut feeling. How can we avoid that? Yeah, absolutely. We've seen that uh, in some of our ventures. So I think overall, there are two ways. So first, top down, this is when founders and management are intrinsically data driven. So they're well aware of uh, data's benefits and therefore are leading the way in having data at the very least augment the decision making process. And then the other mm -hmm. way is bottom up uh, when You have a really good data team that has built a frictionless analytics infrastructure. And then this is key. It understands the business really well. And also it communicates how data can help in a very, very good way to the organization. Is one of them better? Would you go top down or bottom up? I would say that ideally you have uh, both. Um, uh -huh. And... Yeah, there's no one that it's better. Okay. How about, um, yeah, basically the tooling? Which tools and infrastructure would you recommend a startup to use in 2022, 2023? Yeah, tooling and infrastructure choices depend really on the company in its team structure and what are the skill sets that they have. So a lot of the data tooling has been commoditized in the past few years. Uh, which really makes the barrier of entry and usage quite low, which overall is a good thing. Uh, we recommend that companies choose tools from the modern data stack, which is super modular. It can be built starting very lean and also then extended upon as the company matures. However, it's really important to understand that concepts are more important than tooling. So whatever mm -hmm. tools you choose, it's more important to use them in a conceptually sound way. So I often say mm -hmm. that we are not dogmatic about tooling for different companies, different tools make sense, but we are really strong believers in concepts. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that is for sure true in actually when it comes to the data stack, but actually about tools uh, in, in, in every area. Uh, the most important exactly, is that yeah. they are clear about what you want to do, how you want to do it, and then there are multiple tools that uh, that you can that you can use in this context. What do you think? How should a data team be structured? Which roles and which functions uh, should it have? And maybe also, yeah, how how do they report into each other? How how, how should that play together? Yeah, well, this really depends on the level of maturity of the company. So mm -hmm. we uh, say usually that at early stage, companies should start with an analyst 
with a strong business sense. So somebody who knows how to help the business, but is also a bit tech savvy so that they can implement a lot of uh, things themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. Then as the company grows, um, hiring a data engineer uh, is important so that the technical implementation is robust, uh, scalable, and it relies on a lot of automation. And then mm -hmm. once a certain uh, level of maturity is achieved, uh, when you have a solid analytics infrastructure, uh, you can start thinking about more advanced use cases and then bring somebody in for machine learning, like a data scientist or, or a ML uh, engineer. Of course, uh, for some companies uh, where ML is a crucial part uh, of the product, you would do this differently. And then you would need the machine le learning roles earlier. But that's another mm -hmm. discussion. Yeah, of course. Then to go to the structure of the team. Well, um, we believe that for most companies, having a central data team uh, with analysts and data engineers is what works best. There can and should be different responsibilities on terms of which functional areas um, uh, the team members uh, cover. Uh, but for most companies, it really makes sense to keep the team central for as long as possible. Then at a certain size of a company, once the company gets too big and with that the data team uh, as well, you can think about having this hub and spoke model with a central team that is focused on core analytics priorities while mm -hmm. also having data peeps distributed across the business areas that they support. Uh, but would these these decentral people would they then really also report like within marketing within product, or would they just be within the central team and then uh, just have this speciality and uh, I don't know have kind of a dotted line or so in, into the areas they they support? Yeah, so I, ideally they benefit from uh, the knowledge that the central team has, and this is why they yeah. kind of belong to the central team, but rather have mm -hmm. dotted lines to the focus areas where report, so that they're like fully and well integrated uh, in what they're supporting there. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah, there's this fully decentralized model uh, where data team members actually sit with the business teams, and there's no central team at all, and I'm personally, I'm not a fan of that. So this only makes for huge uh, companies, which we don't see much of uh, in the startup world. Ole, back to you. Where should a data team be located in the org chart? If you have one person on top of these two subtopics that we have here, data engineering, data analytics, you have one person on top, who should this person report to? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think it would be a good idea not to separate and decentralize the team itself too much. So sometimes we see data engineering reporting into IT, but then the analysts are basically situated within different departments. Mm -hmm. And there, well, there's not a lot of knowledge spillover in this case. And there's a bit of, well, information that gets lost in translation between these teams. So especially with startups just starting out, having a core team where data engineers and analysts are really well aligned and are exchanging constantly is probably the way to go until complexity increases. Now, who should that team report into? 
if we have a very senior lead at hand that can navigate both the strategic and tactical level quite well, then I would actually recommend for the data team to directly sit below the founder or CEO. Of course, the lead doesn't get too much attention then, but at least is basically exposed to a lot of strategic matters and then can translate what that means in terms of data initiatives. But also we see a lot of times the data team reporting into CPO or CMO. There you have to be careful that it doesn't affect prioritization too much and the data team ends up only working on marketing or product analytics, which ideally shouldn't be the case. Unfortunately, maybe to also share an observation with you, Rainer, one setup that doesn't seem to work too well is the data team below the CFO. Mm. Why? Well, basically budgets can be a bit more constrained here. The team is very much just tasked with this self-service aspect that we talked about. So getting reports ready and delivering KPIs reliably. But in these kinds of setups, we haven't seen a lot of more inspirational topics, a lot of more proactiveness. So not really delivering a feature like a recommendation system for which products to buy in the website or in the product. This is usually not happening to a large extent when the team reports into the CFO. So ideally it's, a, it's the CEO, but sometimes also other stakeholders can make sense. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree totally. We have, we have examples in our own portfolio where the CFO is on top of the data and analytics team. But I would say where we have it and where it works well, it's also not the very classic CFO profile, but it's people that just like besides doing finance, they also drive certain aspects of the business, but they don't do it out of the I, I gatekeep the financials of the company perspective because that's not where really like driving the business with data would probably be coming from. Yeah, unfortunately not. And I mean, this question pops up again and again because there's no definite answer to it yet. Sometimes teams are below the CTO as well and they end mm. up building something yeah. technically very sound that doesn't meet business needs again. So there's definitely no, no right or wrong here, but ultimately you have to make sure that the person leading the data team is to a certain extent exposed to to really strategic objectives yep. and, and thus understands in which direction to run to run the team. And maybe that's also under the CFO if it's a really business, business heavy one. But yeah, TBD, I guess. Okay, thanks a lot. Environmental, social and governance. The next chapter is environmental, social, and governance. And with us now is Paola Tatai, who is our newest addition to the team, I would say, um, on the leadership level. Um, Paola is our ESG specialist. Welcome. Thank you very much, Aina. So GDPR, we've worked a lot on that. Every company hopefully has. Overall, what's your perspective? Is GDPR a struggle or an opportunity? That's a very good question because definitely the introduction of GDPR laws in, in 2018 in Europe was a very heavy burden for companies. It was a very complex uh, piece of regulation. It requires a lot of due diligence and professionalization as well. So in that sense, um, and also taking into account the fines that come with breaching it, which is about, um, it can be um, 20 million euros or 4% of annual revenue, 
definitely companies had a very high bar to meet and it was felt across the board. Now, I definitely see it as an opportunity and the reason for it is because um, its existence responds to the need of it in a democratic process. It tackles what it is, a universal uh, human right, which is the right to privacy and not have an interference with your communications and your private life. And that cannot be lost uh, from sight. And the reason why this is so important is because digitalization is the fourth industrial revolution. So it really has changed the way that we live, the way that we make money, and that we also consume. So with every person having this mini computer in their pocket, um, everything can be tracked from their location, what they buy, how many steps they take, who they speak to. The risks of not having strong regulation there is definitely um, what we see in an episode of Black Mirror when people receive <laughs> some points uh, depending on on whether they are good citizens or not. Uh, definitely, we would not we don't want to see that, and is one of the risks of not having strong privacy laws. Thanks a lot. You can you can understand from the from the answer. We really have somebody here with a lot of passion for the wider field we are tapping into now. <laughs> Does ESG help companies getting funding or do investors rather see it as a deflection from just like being fully revenue focused? And I think you're a good person to answer that and especially probably give, give an overview of how, how you understand ESG in the first place, what it's actually about. Definitely. Um, what I have noticed right now working outside um, of an ESG focused organization is that uh, the term is very misunderstood. And that is natural because there are so many terms out there. There's sustainability, corporate social responsibility, triple bottom line. So, okay, what is ESG? What does it need? It bring new to the table, right? Um, so just to its most basic form, ESG means environmental social governance. And what is important to note is that this was created by the financial industry, so it is a, a set of metrics and measurements. So it's very data focused. And what it tries to do is to measure beyond only financial metrics. And what it is giving um, basically a highlight into is that for a company to be successful, it cannot be only based on money. Something else needs to come. And this is how they relate to their environment, as we know that the resources in this planet are not infinite. How, does, how do they work with society? So with their employees, with uh, their consumers, with their communities and governance. Are they a serious organization? Are they acting legally? Do they have accountability structures? So in my opinion, ESG is really ensuring that your company has a very strong foundation for long-term success. So going back then to your question, does it help getting funding or is it deflection of earning as much as possible? Interestingly, um, for a very long time, and I see this still happening, it is thought that pursuing something beyond financials can actually hinder it. Why? Because ESG has a cost. If you want to make sure that you're acting appropriately, you need resources, you need to have systems that have ensure this. So 
it comes at a cost, but what is seen and what it has been shown is that in the long term, it makes sense because you are more resilient to risks and also you are able to tap better into opportunities that open to you, such as GDPR, as we have seen some companies have launched products and made loads of money out of it. So in the short term, yes, it costs money. But in the long term, it will definitely help you to get more funding because you'll be showing that you're a serious company able to grow sustainably. Thank you for that. Now, um, why does a person like you with so much passion and knowledge uh, for that topic uh, work for a fund like Project A and not in an ESG company? To be completely honest, I have worked in both. So just right before being with Project A, I was with an NGO, uh, very much focused in environmental uh, in the environmental part. I worked for uh, CDP, which gives um, environmental ratings to organizations every single year. And um, here comes the, do you want to uh, preach to the choir or do you actually want <laughs> to work where you can make the most of an impact, which is a non-specialized company? And what I see is that the impact of what I can do is much more when I am bringing my knowledge outside of, of this field, of this industry. Now, imagine you are a startup. Um, what could you do? What should you do internally in order to help our environment? I'm not talking about what should you do in order to make everybody else, but like you are, you're fresh, you have just started, you're the first, I don't know, five, 10 people in the company, you're in the tech sector. What should all these companies for, sh for sure do in the, in the E and ESG? The E question is very, very interesting because it is now at the forefront of the conversation of ESG. We see every day in the news the impact that climate change is already having into our world and also the uh, problems that we're having with biodiversity and loss of species. But it's not really well understood how these impacts companies that they are not in really high impact sectors. So we see a lot fossil fuels. We see the conversation around mining, but a bit less into the digital space because it is believed that in that area, there's no so much of an impact. And that actually is not correct. So what I would recommend any startup to do regardless of the sector where they work, is to understand their impact across natural resources. So this could be um, obviously their consumption of CO2, which also comes through purchasing energy to run their company. It could be water usage, deforestation, and also impact on biodiversity. And why I say this is that is because you can only think, you cannot only think about your operations, but you also need to think about your supply chain. So if you, for example, are working in batteries, you'll be very much relying on some minerals. And here the conversation as well is very important into how much of these are available and to what cost. So understanding how, what is the impact of your operations and supply chain is very important to then, as a second step, um, be able to measure it and progress, uh, set yourself some goals and, and progress. So here, for instance, you want to be more efficient with how you use your uh, resources. And this actually leads to economic savings, which are very important loads of times for, for companies as well. So not only you're doing good, but you're also saving money in the way. And finally, um, something I think is very important is for a company to think how they are nudging correct behaviors by their employees. 
So for instance, I have seen um, companies that have cycling pro programs for, for their staff or they subsidize public transport. So in that way, through their benefits, they're also uh, helping the environment. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Uh, similar question about social, the S in ESG. Uh, what could and should a startup do? There is so much work that needs to be done in social because um, you have the interaction with your employees, how you treat them, how they work for you, then also how you are giving products to consumers, if they are responsibly created, if they are able to last, or for example, in the textile industry, will they break after, after just one wash? Um, and finally, also the impact in the community where you operate and you source. When we are thinking more about a startup, I think uh, it becomes very important how they are growing their company. Startups go through hyper growth um, and they have loads of work to do in HR at the very beginning. And what is very good about a startup is that they are very flexible. They are able to create culture. They are able to um, to build foundations that then when the company becomes much bigger, they're already settled there. So for that reason, I would focus in the relationship with employees. What we are seeing right now um, as being two very important aspects is both diversity and equal pay. And the reason why I chose these two is because of the regulation that has been confirmed right now at the European level called that is referred to as women on board. So from 2026, publicly listed companies will have to meet a quota of underrepresented sex, which has been 10 years in the making. There has been loads of conversation about whether that uh, compromises quality in a board of directors. But finally, the step has been taken to make sure that the law is supporting that more equal representation. So we need to ensure diverse working forces, especially when it comes to management level. But also gender pay gap has come into focus. There was a very recent study that showed that in this, in this year, in the UK, the payment of startups was more unequal than in 1992 for the national average. So there was almost a 20% difference between what a man and a woman get paid in the UK. And unfortunately, Germany is not doing much better. So this shows that there is still much work to be done. And even though startups are young companies, innovative companies, very uh, with very innovative thinking, they're still behind when it comes to certain metrics that need to be working into. So I would recommend this to be a focus as it is not um, very difficult to do. I'm very proud that at Project A we watch this very closely and, and we make uh, loads of uh, focus into ensuring that um, we have equal workforces and, and a good representation as well at management level. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Um, governance, the G in ESG. I can tell you that um, from... I mean, we we recorded quite an, quite a number of episodes of this podcast now, and I would say at least nine out of ten founders uh, struggle um, actually like understanding what this G is actually really about. So, please help us. <laughs> I will try my best, but I have to say that for me, it's also perhaps the most obscure term of of them all. 
and I have done quite a lot of research to to fully understand it. So hopefully, um, what I have prepared today will will help. Um, I thought it was very interesting when I was reading about the origins of the term ESG that was coined in two thousand and five by the UN and, and the financial industry. That the G was the most important one, the one that oh. everyone agreed <laughs> that it was very clear that it was the most important one. And then they decided, okay, should we call the, these GES? But they said, no, it doesn't sound so good as ESG. And they definitely <laughs> said, let's put S in the middle so it cannot be chopped out. <laughs> Reminds me of the story <laughs> why Project A is called Project A. <laughs> <laughs> So surprisingly, to this day, people don't really know what the G is, but at the beginning, it was definitely the most important one. Um, so it is a bit obscure when it comes to defining it and understanding it. So for me, uh, governance entails not only complying with laws, because um, governance is very much structured by, by uh, existing regulations, if you think about anti-money laundering, that is coming already in a law form. But it also refers to ethical business practices and accountability systems to run a company. So to put it quite crude, it is also for the uh, management level not to take a credit card and just go on a weekend to the Bahamas and, and buy loads of booze and so on. Because even though they have access to the money, um, they should not uh, be doing this. If this case sounds uh, familiar, it's because I took it out of the uh, last uh, crash of FTX and <laughs> what actually was happening there. But um, something very interesting is that when we see the collapse of startups recently, such as WeWork or FTX, we see that one of their big, big problems was a lack of uh, governance. So an accountability system for founders and management, that the funds were used responsibly, that they were accountable to their stakeholders and that they were acting ethically. So when you have founders or you have management that are unconstrained by how they can have uh, make use of uh, company assets or how they should be or not responding to their investors, that is when you run into problems. So governance um, really ensures that you have a basis where you, uh, you, you tell your stakeholders that you are a trustworthy company, you're a trustworthy team, and you are going to be not only uh, acting according to law, but also to respectable and ethical business practices. So if you if you're listening to this and you still like don't don't know how that how that would look in in, in reality then maybe just watch uh, the series we crashed and everything that's going wrong there that is probably governance. <laughs> yes, just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> All right, thanks for that. Um, what's a good moment in the development of a startup to have a role like yours having an ESG officer or an ESG specialist or so? This is a very uh, difficult question to answer because it will very much vary company to company. Um, so I, I just want to give you today two ideas. Um, the first one is um, an approximate um, reference of why, where you really might need uh, someone to work for you, but the, also add what works needs to be done until that moment. So 
you might need an ESG officer uh, by the time that you have to do some uh, reporting mandated by law. And you have to really respond to a very specific set of KPIs. So why I'm saying this is that from 2025, 75% of the European market is going to have to report against the CSRD, which um, basically is your reporting of ESG metrics. We are going from 11,000 companies that had to do it up to 2022 to 50,000 companies in 2025. And then SMEs will also have to start reporting. So then you definitely will need to have a person that is more specialized to act as a watchdog that takes all these data and reports it. But up to this moment, you need to train yourself to it. You need to already have this foundation from the very beginning. So what I would recommend is that from day one, you have one, of, one person that is making sure they understand what are the ESG material risks of your company. So to make this a bit more specific, if you are a gaming company, you need to make sure, for instance, that you are building a responsible product and the design is solid to just go to market and make sure it succeeds. It succeeds. But also it can be ensuring that you are not discriminating against your employees. This is something that needs to be done since day one. And as your team grows, you will see that different verticals. So you will see that ESG penetrates into operations, penetrates into HR, penetrates into also uh, finance, for example. So you need to have, from the very beginning, a system. Sometimes this is a committee of people that will ensure that uh, these risks and opportunities are measured. Now, as you grow and everything mo becomes more sophisticated, your operations, um, your organizational structure, then you might also need to have a person that makes sense of it all, so that takes all these metrics across the whole organization that comes up with ideas, with projects to make sure that you not only keep a good standard, but you also improve. So um, maybe to summarize, the ESG person is more like an orchestra director, making sure that all the pieces are working together and then this can be reported to stakeholders. So that... That sounds like such a person should in the organization not sit somewhere, I don't know, under HR or so, but that, that's a central function. So it's probably, I don't know, reporting directly to the founder slash CEO or so. Definitely. It is very important that that person has uh, direct access to key decision makers in the organization to bring quite quickly um, ideas and prioritize. Okay, I have identified that we are having a very strong issue in this area in, for example, how we are hiring staff or how we are paying staff. Let's just find a remedy quite soon. So because it it is integrated into every vertical, the ideal scenario is that Every single uh, manager of, of these areas is trained to a certain level into what ESG means. And then the ESG officer um, is actually watching the organization and making sure it's reported directly to management. And now the last three questions and we go back to Charlotte. Um, number 38, Charlotte, which is the one podcast all founders should listen to? Obviously the Project A podcast. Of course. That's it? Yes. Okay. Number 39. What are the top two pieces of advice for early stage founders? 
Number one, put people first. Your company is nothing without them. And number two, don't put yourself last. So I would probably recommend working with a coach very early on, either for yourself or in your founding team, making sure you also set your personal boundaries and you find a great source of energy outside of work. That's interesting because, I mean, like some people probably wrongfully have this impression that a coach is something for people who are struggling, but you see that uh, as a measure to make strong people stronger. Absolutely. Okay. Charlotte, who are the two other founders? I should ask this set of questions and you will make an introduction for me. Andrea Fernandez from Vitamin. Mm -hmm. And Antonia Belsolz from Uplift. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to these introductions. And that's it for today, folks. Um, thank you very much for listening in. Thank you to all the guests here today. And um, thank you for listening. We appreciate your interest. If you want to know more about Project A and everything that we do, both on the investment side as well as, as you want to grab a ton of operational knowledge, just go to projecta.com and for the podcast. If you want to hear us again, subscribe to it, rate it, review it, and of course, share it with all your colleagues, friends, and family. Thank you and goodbye. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. If you did, how about you subscribe on Spotify and or iTunes and give us a rating. Thanks, guys.